the reading this morning, the reading this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. As you read what I have written, you will understand what I know about this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now he has revealed it by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is the secret plan. The Gentiles have an equal share with the Jews in all the riches inherited by God's children. Both groups have believed the good news, and both are part of the same body and enjoy together the promise of blessings through Jesus Christ. By God's special favor and mighty power, I have been given the wonderful privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Just think, though I did nothing to deserve it, and though I am the least deserving Christian there is, I was chosen for this special joy of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose was to show his wisdom in all its rich variety to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. They will, they will see this when Jews and Gentiles are joined together in his church. This was his plan from all eternity, and it has now been carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Our subject for today is the church upholds the truth. This is an important subject, and it could be approached in a number of different ways. And I can tell you right now that I'll not cover all of the things that I could or maybe even should uh, due to our time constraints this morning. But first, I want to mention to you a little bit of my own background and my commitment to this particular subject. I became a member of the Lord's Church or the Church of Christ on the long weekend in May of 1973, when I was added to the church according to the example of the Christians in the book of Acts, chapter 2 and verse 41. Notice that I said I was added to the church as one cannot join the Lord's church. For a long time I had struggled with a question. And that question was, and actually I had it from the time I was, I can remember as a small boy, what happens to a person after you die? And I had never found the answer to that question until that Sunday night in May of 1973 when I heard for the first time a gospel preacher preach the gospel. And I I remember standing in the living room of my in-law's home and asking that preacher, Fred Sizemore, what happens to you after you die? And what impressed me is that he opened the Bible to Luke chapter 16 
and read me the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And I said, I don't want to end up like the rich man. What do I have to do? And Fred Sizemore shared with me the gospel. And I was the gospel. That when one believes that Jesus is the Lord, the Lord and Savior, when one decides to repent of their sins, which means you do an about face, you turn away from them. And that you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Those sins are taken away and cast behind God's back, never more to be remembered. And so when that gospel was explained to me, and I had the privilege to be baptized about midnight together with my wife at that time, I have always appreciated the fellowship of the Lord's Church. At the time, we lived in a small town in southwestern Manitoba where I worked in Melita. We attended the church, the small church in Brandon, which was about 85 miles away. And we were there for a couple of years until we moved down to Louisiana so I could attend the School of Preaching at Whites Ferry Road in Monroe, Louisiana. I appreciated the Christians that I had met there from many different places in the United States and some from other places in the world. And then for a year and a half, I preached at a small congregation in Arkansas. And I appreciated the fellowship there. Then back to Winnipeg to preach. And then to Ontario, where I preached. And then to Saskatchewan, where I preached. And finally back to Manitoba on July 1st of 1989. And in all those places, I have met people who hold to the truth, who have obeyed the gospel. And that's always been very important to me as an individual. I've said several times before that in homiletics class, you're told, or at least my teachers told me, the sermon is supposed to have three main points and subpoints underneath. Two today, that's all there's going to be. I'm going to talk about the importance of truth, and I'm going to talk about ancient boundaries. And so we start with the first one, the importance of truth. And I recognize right away that not everybody that we associate with, sometimes maybe we even ourselves don't always want the truth. We realize that not every individual that we rub shoulders with is a person of truth. In fact, some don't even want the truth. Because to accept the truth would mean a drastic change to the lives that that person is living. And I think Pontius Pilate, this was mentioned in that uh, film strip we saw this morning, was one of those people. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? But I want you to notice what led up to that statement in John chapter 18 and verse, well, starting in verse 35, when, when Jesus was brought before Pilate, he asked, why are you here? Why are you standing before me? Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom 
is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's what Jesus came for. He came to bear witness to truth. And anybody who wants can be a person of truth, if you will hear his voice. But not everyone wants to hear that voice of truth. Pilate represents all of those who really don't. When he asks the question, what is truth? In other words, you know, how can you really know the truth? Is there shades of truth? Is it gray? Is it white? Is it black? I submit to you that when it comes to truth, truth is pretty narrow. Truth is truth. There's no different shades of what the truth is. It is what it is. And I believe the truth has a ring to it. But as I've mentioned, truth often isn't popular. For instance, in the courts of law, people will stand there coming up this week, at the, at the law courts down on Broadway, and some of them will raise their right hand and they will swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And then, after swearing that oath, they will turn around and lie to try and get off whatever it has been that they have done. Maybe you have been the brunt of somebody who has been untruthful. Maybe somebody has messed up at work and made a bad mistake. And they try to deflect the truth themselves by placing blame on someone else. Maybe that someone else would be you. And you know how, how you'd feel about that, or how you might feel if that has ever happened to you. But then, on the other hand, as I thought about that, I thought about those people who will spill the beans, and they will tell the truth even though they're going to suffer some pretty serious consequences. One event like that stands out in my memory. I find it humorous, but I also find it very encouraging. The first I'm going to tell you about is actually my brother-in-law. It happened when he was 16 years of age. He was illegally fishing for pickerel. And if you don't know what pickerel is, that's the best eating fish there has ever been or ever will be. Pickerel. And that's unbiased, by the way. He was illegally fishing with a friend in Garrick's Creek, in Reedy Creek, Manitoba, at night. Not only that, he was 16, but he didn't have his driver's license, and he was driving his dad's van without his dad's knowledge. But, but it gets worse than that. There happened to be a loaded shotgun in the back of the van. And the reason for the loaded shotgun is they had seen a skunk, and his friend had gotten the shotgun, and they're going to try and shoot the skunk with the shotgun. And the shotgun, the skunk got off the road. They didn't shoot. The shotgun got put in the, in the back behind the seats on a battery. 
And at some point, his friend went back into the back. I don't remember for what reason. And when he moved the shotgun off the battery, the shotgun went off and shot part of his foot off. On his way to the St. Rose Hospital, with his foot wrapped in a, in a bath towel from one of the farm neighbors' farms, the friend said to my brother-in-law, Lance, he said, Lance, this is a gunshot wound, and there's going to be an RCMP investigation. We need to get our story straight. What is the story we're going to tell about what has happened? And to my brother-in-law's credit, he said, well, I don't know about you, but I'm in enough trouble as it is. I'm telling the truth. And I tell that story because I think the truth has to be told because it's the right thing to do. And it's the thing of good character to do. And as we go through life, dealing with the affairs of this life, whether they be spiritual Scriptural matters, how we conduct ourselves spiritually and morally, or whether it be in how we conduct ourselves in our daily life, that we conduct ourselves in a proper way, even if it means we are going to face some consequences. So truth, Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth. And it doesn't cut it to just say, well, what is truth? And to try to sidestep it. So I want to talk to you about some truths today. I want to talk, secondly, second major point, about ancient boundaries. In Proverbs chapter 23, verses 10 and 11, the proverb writer said, Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead his case against you. And so what I read into that, as I try to understand what is being said here by the proverb writer, the proverb writer is saying to those who are uh, people, unscrupulous, unscrupulous people, people not of good character, who when the landowner died, they would go and try and take part of that land or maybe all of that land away from that individual's children, those who were left fatherless and maybe defenseless against that neighbor or whoever it was who had tried to take that property. In the law, Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 17 says, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and the people shall say, Amen. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 14 says, You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which your ancestors have set, in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. And so God obviously expected his people to hold to the importance of property and what that meant to be the owner of property and the rights that that individual had in owning that piece of property. And so let's, let's think about that for just a minute. I'm going to use just a few examples. In the 1990s, I was bear hunting in the Duck Mountains, and I was in a thick, tangled valley, and I was near some beaver dams. 
And all of a sudden, in the midst of all this, I came across about a four-foot round mound in the bush, and there was a, a one-inch iron stake uh, driven into the center of that mound. And it kind of surprised me, because that's kind of the last thing I expected to see there. But it was the corner of somebody's property. And even though probably I was I'm probably the only one that saw that for probably for years and years because of where that particular piece of or that property was located. Like you just come across it and there it is. You don't expect it to be there. Another example. When I lived in Dauphin, some of my Christian brethren lived in certain area, and I was over at their house one day, and they mentioned to me that I, I happened to see that there was a uh, dividing line between the two properties. A few stakes had been driven between the properties and some rope on top of this property. And I looked at it, and I wondered what was going on, and the, my friend said, uh, well, we had accidentally mowed one mower length onto the neighbor's property. And the very next day, when they got up, the neighbor had come and put up the stakes and the rope, saying, stay off my property. You can't mow even one mower's length onto my property. And one other example of what it means to, what it means about property rights and where I'm going with this sermon. When I lived in Winkler, there was one of the churches that had allowed the church, uh, the property owner had allowed the neighboring church to use 10 feet of their property to park their cars on. And one morning, somebody from the church had gone over to the lady's door and knocked on the door and said, uh, you know, we can smell your barbecue in the church building. Would you please turn it off? Well, the next Sunday when they came to church, there were stakes and a property line put up, and they could no longer park on that 10 feet of space that they had been using free for years. And the church was forced to buy that 10 feet of property at a fairly good expense. Property rights, boundaries, ancient boundaries are important. And so now... There's two points under my second main point, okay? Hope that makes sense. I want to talk about the ancient boundary of a cappella music. I don't know if you noticed, but as Richard was leading us in song this morning, one of those songs had the a cappella company down in the right-hand bottom corner. What is a cappella music? A cappella music is vocal music or singing without the aid of musical instruments. The early music of Judaism, Jewish religion, and early Christian music was all a cappella, unaccompanied by instruments. In the New Testament, when we read about music or singing or song, when God is worshipped in song, it is performed a cappella. There are still some groups besides the Church of Christ who do not use instruments of music in their worship services. Some of the Presbyterian churches, old regular Baptists, primitive Baptists, Plymouth Brethren, 
old German Baptist brethren and some of the old order Mennonite churches. And just recently, towards the end of August, when I was at the Morden Corn and Apple Festival, I got talking to some Hutterite gentlemen who had come to listen to the music. And one of these gentlemen, we started talking about some spiritual things, scriptural things. And when he found out that I was a member of the Church of Christ, and I told him that we, when we are in worship, we sing without the aid of musical instruments, it was quite surprising to him, because he said, that's what we do. And so there are people, religious groups, who do not use instruments of music. And I want to just mention a few scriptures, if you have your Bibles, uh, uh, turn to them quickly. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30. And this is just before, this is during the Passover and just before Jesus is betrayed and taken to the cross. In 26 verse 30, just after, by the way, he has also given instruction about the Lord's Supper. It says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I wonder how many of you have read over that, as I have, quickly and not really thought about it that much. But you know, all of a sudden, I kind of got this picture of Jesus and his disciples taking the time to sing together. It's kind of a nice picture to me. I kind of like that. In Acts chapter 16... And verse 25, as Paul and Barnabas are in prison, in verse 20, or, or Silas, I'm sorry, uh, Paul and Silas, in verse 25 it says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Think about that one. Those guys that were in prison were probably not very nice individuals. They weren't in prison for helping little old ladies across the street. They were in prison probably because they had done something pretty bad. And these men, some of them, not all probably, but some of them, were probably pretty bad individuals. And when Silas and Paul started to pray, and then they started to sing, do you see what it says there? The prisoners were listening to them. They weren't heckling them. They weren't yelling, shut up, we want to go to sleep. It says they were listening to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15, Paul says, what is the outcome then? I shall sing with the spirit and I shall sing with the mind also. I shall pray with the mind also, sorry. I shall sing with the Spirit, and I shall sing with the mind also. Ephesians 5.19 says, speaking, and this is encouragement to us as Christians, and when we come together as a church, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody where? In your heart to the Lord. And by the way, you know, you really got to get the... To get the effect of the singing here and the beauty of the singing, you need to be up near the front. It sounds great up here, everybody singing together. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 discusses the worship service of the Church of Christ at Corinth. And textually, the word sing that is used there is used in such a way that it cannot include musical instruments. Further, there is no reference to instrumental worship in the worship of the church for the first six centuries, 600 years of its existence. Instruments were considered a Roman Catholic innovation, and it was not widely practiced until the 18th century. Reformers Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, and Alexander Campbell vigorously opposed instruments in worship. So that's one of the ancient boundaries of worship, is a cappella music to worship God. The second that I will talk about is leadership in the church. Because I don't think leadership can be understated. The Lord has designed the church in a specific way. It's not up to us as individuals to decide this is how we're going to worship God or this is what we're going to do. Uh, we'll set these rules and regulations up and this is what we'll do. We'll, you know, we'll get together some kind of a creed that we'll say every Sunday. We'll memorize it and say, no, the Bible doesn't give us that sort of thing. Leadership is designed by God to be done in a special way. Not only must the worship be according to his will, but the leadership also must be organized properly. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. Paul says, Now you are Christ's body, that's the church, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and that basically includes those who are the preachers. Preachers are teachers, right? Then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Now, of course, these are rhetorical questions. And we recognize that some of the things that were the scaffolding of the church as the church was being built in the days when Paul was writing these these instructions to the church, the apostles, they were there for a short time. They had the ability to work miracles. They were given that special gift by Jesus Christ. They were able to pass that on by the laying on of their hands to other individuals. But when that last person that the apostles, after they died, when that last person died, the ability to work those miracles ceased. But that was the scaffolding of the church. And the church has been established. 
And we are told that we are supposed to worship God according to his instruction that he has left for us in his holy inspired word. I also want to talk about clergy and laity. I park sometimes and sometimes I'll kind of almost, I feel, I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, but I park at places at funeral homes where it says clergy. But guess what? I don't view myself as being clergy. Never have, never will. Because in the church, you know, those who are the leaders, the ministers, they're viewed as the clergy. And the common people, us, are, review, are viewed as the laity. But in the church, you will find nothing of that thing at all. Because every member, as Paul says, the church, we are members of the body. And we are all equal. Men, women, boys, and girls, we are equal in the sight of God. Nobody is more special. Nowhere in Scripture is a preacher called reverend. Because that only applies to God. Psalm 111, verse 9 it says, holy and awesome, or holy and reverend, is whose name? Is the preacher's name? No, is his name. God's name. That's the only one that we would refer to as reverend. I will not refer to an individual as reverend or father. I've had some that would like me to refer to them as father. But there was only one father I had, and his name was George Anderson. He was my earthly father. My heavenly father, the one I address with the capital F, is my father in heaven, because holy and reverend is his name. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, Paul says that those who are men are to be elders. And he then goes on to state the qualifications, being husband of one wife and, and various uh, instructions for those who are to be the elders of the church. In Acts chapter 15, the apostles and the elders, who were men, were called together to discuss the matter of Gentiles being converted to Christianity. And so in the church, the elders, the overseers, or the other Greek word for that would be bishops, or the shepherds, the Greek word, the pastors, are to be a plurality in each local congregation. There is no one pastor that people are, are to call their preacher. There are many, if, if there was, by the way, to be one pastor in a congregation, the Apostle Paul certainly had the right for that. But nowhere in Scripture is he referred to as Pastor Paul. This practice, basically, is an innovation by religious individuals to give a title to their preacher. But it does not come from the Bible. Years ago when I was preaching full-time, and even as I do funerals, I, people ask me how, they want, how I want to be referred to. And I just say, by my name. And if you have to call me something, just call me a minister. Because I, one time they referred to me as Reverend Anderson, and that gave me a turn. Because I ain't. Time fails me. Oh, by the way, I want to talk about one more thing. As I talk about the elders. 
And I want to, um, I want to go to Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 20. And I want to read verses 28 through 30. And Paul is in uh, Asia Minor at this time, Troas and Ephesus. And he is instructing the elders in Ephesians in these words from Acts 20 and verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, Paul was warning these individuals of savage wolves, of perverse men. And these were ones who preached false doctrine. And I thought about that word perverse for a moment, and I looked up that word, because we don't use that word too often in, in, our, in the English language. And by the way, if you ever have somebody say, you're sure a perverse person, they ain't complimenting you. But what does it mean to be perverse? It means contrary. It means persistent in wrong. It means wicked. It means not correct. And again, it means wrong in, refer, in reference to doctrine. That's what perverse doctrine is. It's wrong. And that's what the savage wolves who would come in amongst the church in Ephesus to draw, to try and draw away the people after them. Now, time fails me to talk further about the plan of salvation other than what I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. But the plan of salvation is one of the time-honored truths that the church has upheld admirably through the centuries. The church is the bride of Christ, as Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body, Ephesians chapter 5. So as I bring my thoughts to an end this morning, as members of the Lord's Church here on this earth, we have a duty collectively and individually to uphold the truth. We need to speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where the Bible is silent. When I first became Christian 50 years ago, I heard that statement a lot, and I liked it. I believe it. We speak where the Bible speaks, and we remain silent where the Bible is silent. As God's children, we have a wonderful message, a life-changing message. But we, all of us, every one of us who hears my voice this morning, all of us have a duty to know that message. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions 
of the heart. There is a great reward in being a disciple of Jesus. When it comes to our own death, we have such wonderful hope. I did a funeral service for a friend of mine this past Monday. And Stacy described him as a man of bold faith, and he was. But as Christians, when we come to our own death, and when we leave this world, I like the words, I wish they were mine, somebody else wrote these, not me. Some men see only a hopeless end, but the Christian rejoices in an endless hope. In conclusion, may we do our part in upholding the truth. Thank you for your attention.